Every outlaw on the run needs to set up shop somewhere, somewhere far away from the prying eyes of the local authorities, who, more often than not, are hot on their trail. Following the Fitzpatrick incident, Ned Kelly, his brother Dan, and two of their friends, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, were in desperate need of shelter in a quiet, hidden place to call their own. They found such a place in the form of Stringybar Creek. Now a protected national forest as well as a beloved campground, it was, in the days of the Kelly Gang, as backwoods as one could get within the wilds of Victoria's state. In short, it was perfect, and so they thought, far enough away from all the hullabaloo to establish a base of operations. They supported themselves by panning for gold in the nearby creek, as well as distilling whiskey for some of the thirstier locals. It was a nice little setup for the motley crew, but as to be expected, it wasn't long before the law caught up with them. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the third and final part of The Ballad of Ned Kelly, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. By mid-October of 1878, shortly after the trial for the Fitzpatrick incident, in which Ned's own mother, Ellen, along with neighbor Bricky Williamson and brother-in-law Bill Skillian, were all tried for their involvement in the fiasco, police had received word that the outlaws were hiding out near Stringybark Creek. On the 25th that same month, two mounted police parties were sent out to search for them. One of them, led by Sergeant Michael Kennedy and comprised of three constables, camped out in an abandoned mining site within the vicinity of the creek, a mere 1.5 miles kilometers, away from where the Kelly Gang was holed up. Though unaware of it at the time, this decision would ultimately cost three out of the four policemen their lives, as it wasn't long before Ned himself had discovered their tracks. The following morning, Sergeant Kennedy, along with one of the constables, one Michael Scanlon, went out to scout the area while the other two constables, Thomas Lonigan and Thomas McIntyre, stayed behind to stand guard over the campsite. At around 5 p.m. that afternoon, the Kelly gang emerged, armed with revolvers and shotguns, from the underbrush and quickly surrounded the policemen's camp. There they ordered Lonigan and McIntyre to completely empty their pockets of their contents, namely their money and firearms. But when Lonigan made an attempt to shoot Ned in defense, the outlaw shot and killed him. Holding McIntyre hostage, the gang waited for Sergeant Kennedy and Constable Scanlon to return, which they did about a half hour later. No sooner had the two arrived were they asked to fork over their cash. When the sergeant tried to unclip his holster, the outlaws fired, killing Scanlon, who himself had made for his own rifle. Though Kennedy had been shot in the crossfire, he made for the woods, with Ned and Dan in hot pursuit. A short time later, the pair caught up with the sergeant, killing him by shooting him multiple times in the side and chest. In the din, McIntyre somehow made his escape, fleeing to the nearby Mansfield police station, where a search party was immediately dispatched. The bodies of Constables Lonigan and Scanlon were recovered that same day, while Sergeant Kennedy's was discovered two days later, riddled with bullet holes. Lonigan had been shot through the arm, leg, and right eye, the latter of which had been his cause of death, while Scanlon had suffered four bullet wounds. On October 27th, McIntyre's account of the Stringybark police murders was recorded at Mansfield Police Station, while Ned's were recounted in two letters he penned in December of 1878 and February of 1879, respectively. In them, he claims that the police had threatened to shoot him and his friends without allowing them the chance to peacefully surrender. This differs from McIntyre's testimony, which states that the police had announced that they were, in fact, there to arrest the gang. To this day, no one knows for certain whose account was the most accurate, or recounted what actually happened. Regardless, in light of this event, Ned Kelly became a wanted man. On October 28th, just three days after the Stringybark murders, the local government put out a collective reward of 800 pounds sterling, or 200 pounds sterling per head, for the capture, dead or alive, of the Kelly gang, though this was soon increased to 2,000 pounds, 500 pounds per head. 
A week later, public notices went up throughout Victoria's state, giving the bushrangers eight days to surrender themselves over to the law. When they refused to do so, Governor George Bowen publicly declared them outlaws, and, under the recently drafted and passed Felons Apprehension Act, they could be killed with impunity by anyone armed or anyone who had reasonable suspicion to believe that they were armed. This act also penalized anyone who provided the gang with assistance, aid, provisions, or shelter, or else withheld information about them from the authorities. The sentence for such crimes was, quote, imprisonment with or without hard labor for such period not exceeding fifteen years, unquote. But despite the harsh penalties under the Felons Apprehension Act, the Kelly Gang moved throughout northern and northeastern Victoria with the help of family, friends, other criminal operations, and strangers sympathetic towards their plight and cause. But the gang were soon in need of money, and on December 8, 1878, after a stakeout in the small town of Euroa, decided they were going to rob the bank there. The following day, at around 12.30 p.m., they held up the Young Husband's substation in Faithful's Creek, a place 3.5 miles, 5.6 kilometers northwest of Euroa. There they held 14 employees, as well as some passers-by hostage overnight in an adjacent storehouse. Luckily, no one was hurt or killed, and one of the hostages, who just so happened to be a hawker, provided fresh, respectable clothes for the gang. On the morning of December 10th, a Tuesday, the gang sprang into action. Leaving Dan to watch over the hostages, Ned, Joe Byrne, and Steve Hart rode out to disrupt the telegraph wires connecting Euroa with the outside world. On the way, the trio encountered some railroad workers, along with a hunting party, and quickly rounded them up and brought them back to Faithful's Creek, where they were promptly relieved of their valuables. From there, the three outlaws disembarked for Euroa, which was more or less empty that day as a funeral was taking place, as well as a court hearing. It was just past 4 p.m. when the men made a beeline for the local branch of the National Bank, gaining access through the front and back entrances. There they held up the bank staff and emptied the cashier's drawers and safes of all their contents, a haul of money and gold that amounted to some 2,260 pounds sterling in value. With the raid finished, the outlaws rounded up all 14 members of the bank staff and brought them back to that selfsame storehouse in Faithful's Creek. By then, the total number of hostages was 37, and by 8.30 p.m., the gang departed, though not before advising their captives to stay put for another few hours before they themselves could leave. What was perhaps most surprising to the public about the Euroa raid in comparison to previous run-ins with the Kelly gang was that no one was hurt or killed. In fact, in the days following this particular incident, local newspapers were quick to point out that all the hostages to whom they had spoken reported that the outlaws had, in fact, acted courteously towards them, though they had, in the beginning, threatened to shoot anyone who caused any trouble. Those selfsame papers were also highly critical of the local authorities, whose ineptitude to catch the gang following the Stringybark murders was juxtaposed with the praise of Ned Kelly and his men for carrying out such a precise robbery. Notoriety aside, the Kelly gang became a sort of media sensation, one of the first of its kind in Australia's history. Naturally, the local government was incensed at being called inept by the press. In response, they launched a ruthless crackdown on all individuals they suspected or believed of being Ned Kelly sympathizers. On January 2nd, 1879, under the guise of the Felons Apprehension Act, various police agencies in Victoria State issued warrants for the arrest of several people accused of aiding the outlaws. Some of these were justified, like Tom Lloyd, Wild Wright, Jimmy Quinn, and Joe Ryan, each of whom were either related to or had maintained close ties with the Kelly family, and had in fact helped the gang after the Fitzpatrick incident. But the other two-thirds of those brought in for questioning were all later released due to lack of evidence. In short, it was a witch hunt of sorts, in which anyone who was destitute, Irish, had formerly served time or a mixture of all three of these were guilty of conspiring with the outlaws. The authorities' reason for doing this, so they thought, was to curb the gang's actions and activities. 
But, as it turned out, their apprehending any co-conspirators did absolutely nothing to quell Ned and his men's crime spree, as 58 police officers and some 50 soldiers were dispatched to Northeast Victoria and posted at various banks throughout the region respectively. The Kelly gang distributed their Euroa plunder amongst their family, friends, and those who had aided them while they were on the run. Of course, it wasn't long before this stockpile needed to be restocked, and Ned arranged for another bank robbery, this time in the town of Geraldary in the neighboring state of New South Wales. It would be the first time the outlaws would venture outside their home territory. In the days leading up to the heist, a group of sympathizers and supporters led a stake out of Geraldary and returned with valuable information. On February 7, 1879, a Friday, the gang set out, crossing the Murray River, which acts as a sort of natural boundary between Victoria and New South Wales, before camping overnight in a heavily wooded area. The following day, they visited the Davidson Inn, just two miles, 3.2 kilometers from their intended destination, where they ate, drank, and were merry, but also gained a bit more information on the town from the staff as well as patrons. Just after midnight on Sunday, February 9th, they set off for Geraldary, though not before stopping at the police barracks about a half mile, 0.8 kilometers, from the town center. There they found only two officers on duty, one senior constable George Devine and probationary constable Henry Richards, and, in true Kelly gang fashion, demanded their money and firearms. Once they stripped the policemen of these essentials, they locked them up within the jail and held Devine's wife and children hostage. What ensued was a game of disguise on behalf of both Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, who, along with the now disarmed Constable Richards, dressed in police clothes and wandered about the town to familiarize themselves with its environs. When the trio returned to the barracks that same evening, they locked the officer back up and the gang finalized their plans. February 10th, 1879, began like any other Monday for the residents of Gerald Airy. It was, more or less, business as usual, so no one paid any attention when Constable Richards arrived in town with two new officers in tow. They were, in actuality, Ned Kelly and Joe Byrne in disguise. The three headed up the main street towards the Royal Mail Hotel, which was directly adjacent to the Gerald Airy branch of the Bank of New South Wales. Upon entering said hotel, they took the staff and patrons hostage, keeping them confined to the parlor. From there, they made their way to the bank next door, where they made off with 2,141 pounds sterling in cash, as well as jewelry, deeds, securities, and mortgages, the latter three of which were later burned because, according to Ned Kelly himself, quote, the bloody banks are crushing the life's blood out of the poor struggling man, unquote. From there, Joe Byrne made his way to the post office, where he held the staff up for their valuables. Meanwhile, Ned took several of the hostages out to bring down the telegraph poles that led to and from the town. When this was done, all hostages were released, though not before a brief explanation as to why Ned and his gang were going about doing what they were doing. According to one eyewitness, he delivered a speech in which he elaborated on his beef with the law and the colonial justice system of the time. From there, the gang departed, stopping on the way back to the police barracks, where they returned Constable Richards. Thus they disappeared into the night, and virtually off the proverbial radar, for they wouldn't be seen again for nearly a year and a half. Following the Geraldary raid, the police forces of both New South Wales and Victoria revved up their efforts to capture the Kelly gang. With the help of several banking institutions in both states, they issued a reward of £8,000 sterling for the outlaw's capture, dead or alive, one of the highest ever offered up to that point. The chief commissioner of police for Victoria, one Frederick Standish, set up a base camp of operations in Benalla, while police superintendent Francis Hare organized search parties and closely monitored the gang's family and friends. This latter endeavor was taken to a whole new level on May 7th, 1879, when Standish drew up a list of some 84 family members and supposed accomplices and delivered it to the Victorian Land Board.
This would bar them from purchasing land in the secluded areas of the northeastern part of the state, thus ensuring that the gang wouldn't be able to stow away, and therefore put a halt to robbery in the region. The outcome of this policy remains a sensitive subject, and, depending upon who you ask, the answers will vary. Some historians say that it caused resentment amongst the poor residents of the area, encouraging them all the more to side with the outlaws. Others say that, while it was sometimes used unfairly and unjustly, the results were great and brought theft in the region to a standstill. But by July that year, despite their best efforts, the police still hadn't been able to track down the Kelly Gang, a frustrating situation that drew ire from both the colonial parliament as well as the media, both of whom were quick to point out the cost and amount of time spent searching in vain. In response, Chief Commissioner Standish appointed Assistant Commissioner Charles Nicholson in charge of operations at the Benalla Police Station and cut the budget for the search in half. While most troopers and foot police were removed, along with the armed soldiers guarding the various banks in the region, Nicholson stepped up targeting targeted surveillance in favor of search parties, employing a network of informers and spies that, he felt, were well qualified for the job. But when nearly a year later, one of said informants, one Daniel Kennedy, returned at last with news of the Kelly Gang's whereabouts, the stories he told seemed too far-fetched to be believed. Kennedy reported that the gang had successfully fashioned bulletproof armor out of old farming equipment and were planning another raid. So incensed was Superintendent Hare by the seemingly made-up story that he fired Kennedy on the spot. Little did Hare know at the time that he'd made a rather short-sighted decision. In the thick of the hunt for Ned and his men, local authorities had established ties with one Aaron Sherritt, a former member of the Greta mob and a lifelong friend of Joe Byrne. Sherritt provided the police with vital information on the gang's whereabouts and was paid handsomely for his intel. To this day, historians are divided as to whether he provided them with accurate information or, due to his close friendship with Joe Byrne, merely threw them off the scent. Whatever the case, Byrne's mother, upon discovering that her son's friend had turned police informant, shunned him, and it wasn't long before the Kelly Gang's respective family members soon learned of his betrayal. The Lloyd and Quinn families, for instance, both of whom you'll remember had familial ties with the Kellys, wanted him shot. In the ensuing months, Ned and Joe sent Sherrod frequent messages, stating how he'd be better off if he joined them in their ranks. But he refused, and continued to maintain his ties with the authorities, incensing Byrne in the process. Soon the gang were drawing up their next plan, one that would guarantee their notoriety, quote, not only in the Australian colonies, but throughout the world, unquote, the murder of Aaron Sherritt. On the evening of June 26, 1880, Dan Kelly and Joe Byrne rode to the Woolshed Valley, where Sherritt lived, and kidnapped Anton Wick, one of his neighbors. Forcing him over to Sherritt's hut, where the latter lived with his then-pregnant wife Ellen, as well as his mother-in-law, Wick called out for him. When Sherritt answered the door, Byrne opened fire with his shotgun, killing him instantly. What ensued was a two-hour siege in which the police who had been stationed at the Sherritt residence hid away with the pregnant wife, while the mother-in-law was temporarily taken hostage by Dan and Byrne. The pair threatened to burn the hut down more than once, but ultimately gave up, riding off into the night. The authorities inside didn't even emerge until the following morning, for fear that the outlaws would still be waiting for them outside. Naturally, word spread quickly of the murder of Aaron Sherritt at the hands of the Kelly gang. Ned surmised that the authorities in Melbourne would soon be notified of this turn of events, and dispatch a special train of police reinforcements to the nearby town of Beechworth, likely gathering even more armed officers along the way. So it was that he and his men stationed themselves in the small town of Glen Rowan in the Warby Ranges. There they damaged the tracks so the train would derail, and they'd proceed to shoot any survivors on sight. From there they'd ride into Benalla, which would likely be unpatrolled at the time, and rob its banks, release prisoners from the jail, blow up the police barracks, and set fire to the courthouse. First came the railroad dilemma, 
The gang staked out a particularly sharp curve in the tracks, overlooking a vast ravine in which to do their dirty work. But when Ned and Steve Hart failed to damage them properly, the two forced some local laborers who were camped nearby to do it for them, saying that they were going to, quote, send the train and its occupants to hell, unquote. Byrne and Dan, meanwhile, assumed command over the Glen Rowan Railway Station, along with the adjoining station master's house. The Glen Rowan Inn, which was opposite the station, was also taken over. They used this latter location to hold the laborers they'd kidnapped along the way, while the station master's quarters were filled with passers-by they were holding hostage, namely women and children. Still another lodging in Glen Rowan, McDonald's Railway Hotel, was used to stable the gang's horses, as well as to store a stockpile of fuses, blasting powder, and suits of bulletproof armor they'd fashioned out of old farming equipment. Everything was set. But by Sunday afternoon, June 27th, the police train still hadn't come. The outlaws moved the women and children into the Glen Rowan Inn, making the number of hostages present around 62 in all. Despite being forced to do the gang's dirty work, several accounts recalled that these victims were treated quite well, with Ned organizing music, dancing, games, and acting altogether amicably towards them while they waited for the train to arrive. By late afternoon and early evening, he even allowed 21 of them to leave. At around 10 p.m. that night, he and Byrne captured the last remaining constable in town, one Hugh Bracken, with the aid of a hostage named Thomas Kernow. But Kernow, a schoolteacher, had his own reasons for assisting the outlaws. By gaining their trust, he hoped that he and his wife would be released, as the 21 others had been, so that they could warn the incoming train of the damaged tracks, and therefore thwart the gang's plans. Sure enough, Ned, thinking Kernow and his wife to be sympathizers, let the couple go, advising them to, quote, go quietly to bed and not dream too loudly. Unquote. At around 2 a.m. Monday morning, the train finally departed from Benalla, carrying seven troopers under the command of Superintendent Francis Hare, five Aboriginal troopers, four journalists, and a number of civilians. Having received word that the tracks had been damaged, Hare ordered a pilot engine to lead the way, only to be stopped just past 2.30 a.m. by Kurnow himself, who flagged the locomotive using a lantern, alerting the engineer of the danger ahead. Back at the Glen Rowan Inn, Ned was about to release the remaining hostages when Byrne burst in to inform them that the train had arrived at last. Constable Bracken advised them to lay low while the gang donned their infamous bulletproof armor. He then slipped out and made for the railway station to notify the authorities of the situation. Upon receiving word from Bracken, Hare led a detachment of his troopers towards the inn while the rest prepared the equipment and horses. It was just past 3 a.m. when the four outlaws stepped out onto the veranda of the inn and began opening fire on the armed policemen some thirty yards away. The scene was lit by pale moonlight, which was just enough to illuminate the makeshift battlefield. It was reported that some hundred to one hundred fifty shots were exchanged in the first fifteen minutes alone. In that time, Hare was clipped in the left wrist and had to be taken back to Benalla for treatment, while Ned himself had been shot in the left hand and arm as well as the right foot. Byrne took a bullet to the leg and retreated into the inn to stop the bleeding. Tragically, two of the hostages inside were fatally wounded by police fire thanks to the thin walls of the structure, despite the authorities having been warned that there were hostages within the building. Thirteen-year-old John Jones and Martin Cherry, a railway worker, both lost their lives. Exchanges between the two factions continued intermittently throughout the night, with periods of increased gunfire breaking out sporadically. It was during the breaks that several of the hostages managed to escape from the inn through the back door. Ned, bleeding heavily from his wounds, first slipped behind the building, then crept into the bushes so as to treat his injuries. At about 5 a.m., while making a toast to the Kelly gang at the inn's bar, Joe Byrne was fatally shot in the groin. For an hour and a half between 5.30 a.m. and 7 a.m., police reinforcements arrived from the nearby town of Wangarata, as well as Benalla, bringing the number of troopers present to about 40. In the four hours between 3 a.m. and 7 a.m., 
the authorities present must have wondered what happened to Ned, as he had disappeared behind the inn following his injuries. Eyewitness accounts recall that he had been pretty bloodied up from his gunshot wounds, and it was unclear at the time whether he had been killed or somehow managed to escape. To this day, historians debate the unaccounted-for four hours in which Ned seemingly vanished from the scene at the Glenrowan Inn, though it's likely that he remained hidden within the bush, tending to his wounds, and mustering up every last ounce of strength he had to retaliate against the men who had not only killed two innocent hostages, but also his fellow outlaw. Whatever the case, he finally re-emerged at dawn, and it was nothing short of theatrical and epic. Just past 7 a.m., a rustling in the bushes behind police lines caused those officers nearest to turn their heads in confusion. There, like a ghostly apparition, creeping slowly towards them through the mist, was Ned, adorned in his bulletproof armor and wielding three pistols, which he used to shoot the officers closest to him. Several of the surviving troopers, as well as the journalists present, compared the sight to that of the Bunyip, a water demon from aboriginal folklore with a taste for human flesh. The authorities returned fire, aiming everything they had at the monster that approached them. One by one, their bullets ricocheted off the metal skin, causing Ned to only stagger briefly before continuing his advance. Dan and Steve Hart provided cover from the inn's front windows, but ultimately it proved in vain. Ned was eventually struck twice in his unprotected legs and thighs, was quickly disarmed and whisked away to the railway station, where a doctor tended to his wounds. Though the leader of the gang had been apprehended at last, the siege at the Glenrowan Inn continued for another three hours, until, at around 10 a.m., a ceasefire was called, and the thirty remaining hostages were released. As for Dan and Steve Hart, they remained inside the building, refusing to come out. At the orders of one senior constable, Charles Johnson, the inn was set ablaze with the pair still inside. After the fire settled at about 4 p.m., a Catholic priest, Matthew Dibney, who had arrived at the scene earlier that day, scanned the charred ruins for the two outlaws and soon found their burnt bodies in the rubble, along with that of their shot compatriot, Joe Byrne. Dan and Hart's remains were sent back to Greta, where they were buried in unmarked graves by their families in the local cemetery. Byrne, on the other hand, was given a hasty burial by police in a pauper's grave at the Benalla Cemetery, which can still be seen and visited today. Despite the injuries and loss of blood he sustained, Ned survived his infamous last stand and stood trial on October 19, 1880 in Melbourne. Sir Redmond Barry, the same judge who had sentenced Ned's expectant mother, Ellen, to three years of hard labor for the attempted murder of Constable Fitzpatrick, presided over this trial as well. Just nine days later, on October 28th, the court adjourned, charging Ned with the murders of Constables Lonigan and Scanlon and Sergeant Kennedy, along with Aaron Sherritt. In addition, he was slapped with several other convictions, both major and minor, including the numerous bank robberies he had carried out, and, last but not least, for, quote, resisting arrest at the Glen Rowan Affair, unquote. He was sentenced to death by hanging. After handing down said sentence, Judge Barry ended with the customary, May God have mercy on your soul. Without missing a beat, Ned retorted, I will go a little further than that, and say I will see you there where I go. The date for the outlaw's execution was scheduled for November 11th, as per the decision of the Executive Council of Victoria, at what's now known as the Old Melbourne Jail, as it has been converted into a museum. In the week leading up to the execution, thousands gathered outside the prison, demanding that he be granted a reprieve, with some even going as far as to draft a petition for clemency that gathered roughly 32,000 signatures. But, as to be expected, the Executive Council responded by saying that the execution would proceed as scheduled, and, on November 10th, Ned was allowed farewell visits from relatives. Of those who turned out, his mother Ellen reportedly told him to, quote, die like a Kelly, unquote, no doubt meaning not to be afraid and remain stoic throughout the ordeal.
Finally, on the morning of November 11th, just before 10 a.m., Ned was escorted from his prison cell to the gallows, where his leg shackles were promptly removed. It's unclear what his last words were. Some reports claim that it was something to the effect of, such as life, while still others say that it was, ah, well, I suppose it comes to this, as the noose was tightened around his neck. Whatever the case, at 10 a.m. sharp that sunny spring day, Ned Kelly was hanged by the neck until death. He was just 25 years old. Up to the present moment, Ned Kelly remains a controversial figure in his native Australia for reasons that, now that you know his life story, are understandable. There are those who, like the people who gathered outside the old Melbourne jail all those years ago, stand by his actions, lauding him a hero for rising up against the oppressive nature of the colonial authorities of the time, who were, on occasion, notoriously prejudiced against such varied communities as the aboriginals, Chinese immigrants, and, of course, the Irish. On the opposite side of the spectrum, you have those who stand by the decision on both those self-same authorities as well as Judge Barry's sentencing, believing the outlaw to have been nothing more than a filthy, low-down criminal, one of the many bushrangers whose legacy or stains on the otherwise proud history of Australia and her people. But no matter where you stand on the issue, it's unanimously agreed that, hero or villain, Ned Kelly has left an indelible mark on the annals of history. He rose from nothing, from the obscurity and desolation of the Australian bush, and became a legend, one whose story will undoubtedly be told and discussed for many years to come. Thank you so much for listening and joining me on this epic three-part episode on the saga of Ned Kelly. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did writing and recording it. I truly had a great time with this one, as Ned is such a fascinating character and truly one of the most notorious in all of history. If you've been listening from the start and would like to support this podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. For just 99 cents a month, 4.99 a month, or 9.99 a month, you can support informative and educational history lessons right in your inbox. Just visit anchor.fm/historylovescompany and click the support button. Listening and sharing help me in big ways too, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join me again next week for another exciting episode right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. Have a great weekend, everybody, and I'll see you next time.